Who was here last night? Double dose, eh? There's nearly as many people here last night as there are now. There's about 50 here last night to escape Eurovision. <laughs> so we're starting to look at the book of Hebrews and as I've said, it's an introduction of sorts which will become clear when I've finished why it's of sorts. So let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your presence amongst us. Thank you on this day of all days, we, we seek more and more of the reality of who you are in our life, in practical, down-to-earth, nitty-gritty ways, that we can be kingdom to the world outside and that people will see you for who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want you to think how many sermons you've heard ever. Not just on Hebrews, but how many sermons have you heard? Depends on your age as to how many, but you'll have probably heard hundreds, if not thousands of sermons. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And Church is a rather strange beast, really, isn't it? Because this morning, all over the world, there will be people, believers, sat passively listening to somebody talk. <laughs> Possibly with the occasional amen or good word. That picture's obviously nothing to do with the baby because people are wearing suits. Yeah. <laughs> Although, did you know that if they, it's a fact that if you took everybody who falls asleep during a sermon and laid them end to end <laughs> in a line, they'd be a lot more comfortable. Oh. That's an old preacher's joke. I got it off an old preacher. But sadly, despite the presentation and the preparation, most sermons, if we, if, if we think about it, make very little impact on our day-to-day -day life. So you're going to waste the next 40 minutes, possibly. <laughs> and you'll never get it back. You'll never get it back. And also, sadly, within 24 hours, you'd have probably forgotten 95% of what I'm going to say. This is church. This is church. This is how we communicate. So... Why the poor response? Why the lack of fruit? Well, it's the difference between information and revelation. And Graham Cook says, Revelation occurs when wisdom penetrates our hearts to the point of transformation. Revelation occurs when wisdom penetrates our hearts to the point of transformation. And a truth, a truth which resides only in your brain, in your thinking, in your memory, is nothing more than information. Whereas a truth which is implanted, yes, a truth which is implanted in our heart and spirit is revelation that can transform our life. And so very often, revelation catches you unaware. 
I mean, you can, you can be reading the Daily Mirror, believe it or not, you know, and something can just, yes, not the sun, Alan, the Daily Mirror, and it just leaps, leaps off the page at you, and it just, it just enters your spirit, and you know that that's a revelation, you know. God doesn't have to restrict himself to the Bible, you know, he can use anything and everything. So it catches you in a way, you don't have to study it, you don't have to memorize it, you don't have to put it on the post-it note by the bathroom mirror and chant it at yourself every morning. You simply just have to be open and to receive it. Your heart is the place of transformation. So what you really believe, and I stress that, what you really believe resides in your heart because it shapes your life, it shapes your attitudes, it shapes your speech, it shapes your activities. Stuff that you really believe. The rest of the stuff that we say we believe, but we don't really. But, you know, we talk to people and we say we believe it. That bears nil fruit in our life and it remains in our head as just information. Only useful for pub quizzes and things like that, you know. Now, personally speaking, I have to admit that I've received more revelation from what I've read rather than from what I've heard. I could probably count on one hand the number of sermons that have really impacted my life. So I'm much more of a reader in that sense. So I thought I would briefly share with you this morning a few of the books that have been doorways to revelation for me in my Christian walk. Now I became a believer in the 70s, in fact, on Sunday the 22nd of February 1976 to be exact at Shepherd's Dean. Um, that's when I became a Christian and the first book that had an impact on me after my conversion was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Now let's see if you lot are more well read than last night. How many people haven't read Mere Christianity? Come on, confess up. Oh, about the same. And let me just check this one again. How many people can't read? <laughs> All right, okay. Now, I remember reading it and everything falling into place. You know, I was a new Christian and I was reading this book and, and it's, it was a bit like in a swimming pool where you start in the shallow end and you're having a paddle and the, the language was very easy, very simple. There was no jargon and it was paddling in the shallow end and it was good stuff and you got deeper and deeper and deeper and there's some really deep stuff, some really excellent stuff. It's apparently the number four book since the Second World War on the ranks of evangelical reading, the most significant books. And you haven't read it, some of you. So I immediately bought several copies and sent them off to my non-Christian friends, thinking, if it impacts me, it's bound to impact them. Sadly, no conversions, no nothing. Some of my friends still talk to me that I sent books to. But what was revelatory meat and drink to me had no impact at all on them. That's because revelation is personal. That's why when your friend comes to you all excited and says, Do you know what? You know what God said to me last night? And then just pours out this revelation truth to you and you and they're excited as anything, they're up here, and you kind of think, yeah, okay. You know, and you have to almost engage with them a little bit because it doesn't impact you the same way. It doesn't, because it's not your revelation. 
And when you go to your friends and you share your revelation, you have to make sure that you're not disappointed that they don't do cartwheels down the path in response. Because revelation is personal. It's personal. I was 20 when I became a Christian. After completing my studies, I went and lived in a Christian community, a small Christian community in Willington Quay, in the vicarage at Willington Quay. And one of the things was, it was a shared life. Uh, one of the things was doing community chores. And I was quite good at ironing, so I was on the ironing rotor. And while I was ironing, I discovered this box of cassettes. I thought, oh well, I'm just ironing. So I started listening to them, and I discovered a man called David Pawson. Whoa, yeah. Right? Never heard of him before. Never heard of him. And I, I avidly consumed these cassettes while I was ironing, and the content literally changed my life. Literally changed my life. And now, he's, he, I would say he's a personal friend, and he's still going strong, aged 86. He's still ministering. But one of David's books that made a big impression on me was The Normal Christian Birth. How to give new believers a proper start in life. And this, the, what this book is saying, and which I agree with, is that a reason that a lot of Christians struggle is because they have been inadequately birthed, spiritually speaking. It didn't happen right at the first time, so they're struggling in their Christian life rather than having started as they were meant to start. And the core content of the book is summed up with the mnemonic rubber, but if you take the vowels out, so it's not rubber, it's R-B-B-R, and you'll see what it stands for, because it says that a normal Christian birth consists of repentance towards God the Father, believing in Jesus the Son, baptism in water, and appropriately on today of all days, receiving Holy Spirit. Can somebody just shut that door? And what it says is that until you've experienced all four of these, you are not fully birthed as a Christian. That you're not fully birthed. And it's interesting to note that it is the third person of the Godhead that we receive, not the second. Okay? We don't receive Jesus. We receive Holy Spirit. Now, many Christians are confused because they're taught to receive Jesus. Come to the front, come to the front and receive Jesus, the evangelist will say, right? And this is all based on a misunderstanding of a text in John 13, which talks about, and there's many that will come and receive him, he will blah, 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 which is not talking about the Jesus that we know, but it's talking about the flesh and blood Jesus that walked around the Holy Land. It's talking about that Jesus, not this Jesus that we know, the Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, the Jesus who ascended to heaven and said, look, I'm going to send somebody who's better for you. Somebody who's just like me, but somebody who's better for you. That's the Jesus that we're talking about, you see. Now, I'm not splitting hairs here. I'm, this is not just some little theological hobby horse of mine, although it is. <laughs> because what happens is that people are 
that, that, that very sensitive stage where they are converted, where they, where they come to, 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 to know Jesus, believe in Jesus, as it said on there, you see, then they are told to receive Jesus. And there's a confusion there. And a lot of Christians don't actually come through to receiving Holy Spirit. It was years after my conversion that I received Holy Spirit because I was inadequately birthed. It wasn't until I met Colin Urquhart at, at, some, at, a, at a meeting years later that I received Holy Spirit because I was inadequately birthed. And what can happen is that Christians who don't have an active relationship with the Holy Spirit experience a fairly powerless, if not religious, Christian walk. This is foundational stuff. And this hit me, and it was a revelation to me which has lived with me ever since. Also, a few years ago, I took some time out from doing what I'm doing now, teaching, uh, because I felt that my sermon content was too heavily second-hand, right? And I, I was hungering for more of a first-hand experience of what God was saying to me so that I could pass on the fruit of that to others when I spoke, you see. So I took some time out completely. And sometimes it is quite good to take time out from ministry because you can get on the old bandwagon and you can just get on with church and the, and the necessity of doing church means that you carry on. Sometimes you need to step back and assess and re retouch with where you are and see whether the gifting uh, is still what you should be doing. And it was during this time that I was uh, not preaching, which Alan reminded us last night was about 16 months, uh, that my appreciation and understanding of Father God was transformed by a revelation of grace. A grace which dismantles the dead framework of performance based religion. A grace that, having, that says, having been saved by grace, you are, why, you know, you're not meant to be made righteous by works. And yet it's the trap that so many Christians fall into. They are saved by grace. That's fantastic. And then, for some reason, they feel they have to work their ticket and that they end up with a, a righteousness which is performance-based, which is not what we want and what, not what God wants. A grace which reveals God as a loving father and not a nitpicking legalistic deity, which sometimes you can pick up. And it was books like Beyond an Angry God by Steve McVeigh and The Hypergrace Gospel by Paul Ellis, which opened my eyes and exposed my heart to this grace revelation. So if any of you are looking for some summertime reading, then particularly I would say either of those books, either of those books are excellent books to read. It's actually put me in a situation where the revelation helped me unlearn stuff that I had learnt in the past and theology that I'd held dear, I ditched because I had come to a different understanding of Father God. And I was reading these books with my mind, as you do, and yet at the same time my spirit was saying, yes, Yes. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where your spirit's almost ahead of you and you say, yes. And your spirit knows that this is good stuff and that this is true. You don't have to filter it through all this stuff that goes on up here. We need to more and more listen 
to the spirit rather than to our thinking. That's why this simple statement which I've shown before is so important. You can trust the voice of God's spirit in your heart more than you can trust the reasoned theology of your mind. If the church received that as a revelation, the church would be transformed instantly. Instantly. But the problem why we don't receive that as a revelation, do you know why that it is? Because our reasoned theology won't let it in. Our reasoned theology stands there a bit like a bouncer on the door at a nightclub. And Grace comes to the door and says, can I come in? And the reasoned theology looks down the checklist and says, you're not on this list. You can't come in. And so you never get in. And that's what happens. Our reasoned theology, like a filter, stops things coming in. I should know, I mean, I'm an ISTJ on the old Myers-Briggs. I'm, I'm built for reasoned theology. Reasoned theology is where I'm at. But we need to be open to the Spirit just breaking through because what happens is reasoned theology will keep you samey. Reasoned theology will just invite in stuff that's the same part of the club. Whereas the Spirit will just smash that all apart and suddenly you'll find that something has happened. You've received something in your heart and spirit which is, is way off the grid. Way off the grid. And that's how God wants us to be. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a theology. As you'll see when I get further down the list on my books, I'm not saying you shouldn't have one. And it should be reasoned in a sense, but it should not, it should not dominate. It should be subservient to what the Spirit says. So my final revelation book is a bit of a theological tome. And it shows that reasoned, thought-out theology can be a catalyst to heart revelation. And that is Understanding the Whole Bible, the King, the Kingdom and the New Covenant by Dr. Jonathan Welton. There's only one thing wrong with this book. It costs you 27 quid on Kindle. <laughs> but I tell you, if you spent 27 quid on it and you had a mind to, it is worth it. I mean, I am still drinking from this font, I tell you because it is an excellent book. It is actually 19 weeks of teaching condensed, put into one book. And you've already received some of this teaching from me when I was talking about the cross, where we find out that the death of Jesus was not God the Father pouring out his pent-up wrath on his Son that there was no separation between father and son, that the shed blood of Jesus sealed a new deal for humanity, that after his death, Jesus, who was high priest, takes his own blood and goes into the heavenly tabernacle and places it upon the mercy seat, providing forgiveness for all. Everybody. Everybody. Not just the evangelicals, not just the, you know, the good guys, everybody. Says John 2, verse 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God the Father and Jesus created a new covenant of forgiveness. That's what happened on the cross. This was not God being some kind of legalistic person saying, you know, I am going to sort out and pour my wrath out upon my son. They were sorting out a new covenant of forgiveness. He's done everything he can to reconcile the world to himself. 
There are five realms. There are five realms that people live in. So see if you can identify where you're at at the moment. And there's a progression within each one and a progression from one to another. First one is the world realm, which, as it says, is the starting point. Those who live there are people who do not, do not know Jesus, are not believers, don't know God, people that perhaps we see on the street, people we work with, people perhaps in our family. They are part of the world realm. We started as part of the world realm. And yet when people come to an understanding of who God is and become believers, and they experience fellowship and baptism and communion, and they understand the basic gospel message, they enter the second realm, which is the church realm. And some Christians live in this realm for the rest of their lives and never go out of that realm. But other Christians begin to realize that there's got to be something more to Christian life than just coming on a Sunday and listening to him go on for 40 minutes while I sit in rows. There's got to be something more to that. You know, when I read the Gospels and I read about Jesus and I see how he lived his life, there's something lack, there's something missing. And so there's a stirring and there's a hunger and they begin to transition and experience things which are charismatic or supernatural. And they become part of the supernatural realm. And then people who are in the supernatural realm within a church setting where the charismatic and the supernatural become accepted or if not expected, where you expect God to move, where you expect God to be present, where you expect healings to take place, where you expect God to invade people's lives and change them, they then have this growing desire to say, well, it shouldn't just be happening here, it should be happening out there. This should be transforming my community. This should be transforming my city, my town, my, my neighborhood, my business of work. And they enter the kingdom realm. The kingdom realm. And within the last 50 years in the church, the kingdom realm perspective has grown tremendously. A desire to see heaven influence earth. And yet, there is another realm still. There is another realm still, which you probably won't guess the name of it. The new covenant realm. The new covenant realm. Where it builds upon this desire to see heaven influence earth, plus a greater understanding of the nature of God and how he relates to us. Now, there's confusion with Christians, not only the confusions over the birthing sometimes, but there's confusion when Christians apply Old Covenant Scripture, which is no longer relevant, to their lives. And very often, sometimes, they can end up in fear of God as the punisher. You know, that they can't step out of line, that they might get hit by the proverbial lightning bolt. Even though they say it half-jokingly, they do see God in some legalistic framework as a punisher, just waiting for you to step out of line and then he's going to sort things out because it's the just thing to do. The church has lost sight of the message of the new covenant. Now I want you to hear what I'm going to say rather than what you think I'm going to say now. This is a special broadcast for Alan who gets twitchy over things like this, right? He needs to sleep at night, right? 
He doesn't need people contacting him saying, what was that heresy coming out of his mouth? So I want you to hear what I'm saying, not what you think I'm saying, right? The church has lost sight of the message of the new covenant because it presents the entire Bible as the active word and will of God. And it isn't. Right? Listen to me. Before you pick up your rocks, listen. Because what happens when that's taught is that then people believe that everything in the Bible is applicable to everybody. That this is teaching, this is the will of God for everybody. And it is not true because some of the Bible is under the old covenant. And nobody's under the old covenant anymore. Are you under the old covenant? Well, you shouldn't be. Can you think of the stuff in the Bible that's to do with the old covenant? That has nothing to do with you anymore. That is not the active will and word of God in your life. Okay? So that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying the Bible's a load of rubbish. I'm saying that there are aspects of the Bible and how you handle the Bible and read the Bible can cause you problems if you don't realize what covenant you're reading from because you're not under the old covenant anymore. Heaven forbid, I mean, that's what Jesus came to get you out of. The old covenant and get you into the new covenant. If you go crawling back to the old covenant and put yourself under that, it's just been a waste of time, a total waste of time. But the church still mixes up the message. A bit of old, a bit of new. And it can even happen in your life too. You can be reading the Bible and think, oh, isn't that a wonderful passage in the Old Testament? I'm going to drag that out of its setting. I haven't a clue where it, what its context is. I haven't a clue at all. It just sounds nice. I'm going to put it on a little post-it note and stick it on my mirror and I'm going to feed off that. Feed off it? I don't think you're feeding on good stuff because you're applying, again, an old covenant, an old covenant message to your life which is no longer valid. No longer valid at all. You are new covenant. You are new covenant. The Apostle Paul spent all his ministry fighting this. All of it. Fighting this mixture of the gospel message. And, and here we get there folks, and the book of Hebrews addresses this issue. There you go. <laughs> Introduction to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews addresses this issue. We need to kill off old covenant thinking and we need to replace it with new covenant thinking right and in doing so we will demolish fear we will demolish end time paranoia so you don't have to get your white suits out and sit on the roof waiting for the second coming right we will demolish that we will demolish legalism we will demolish gender inequality we will demolish racism Alan's laughing because last night I said gender equality I said, I better get that right tomorrow. <laughs> the covenants that God had with Abraham and David were fulfilled in Jesus. And they expanded to impact the whole world. But the mosaic, or as we call it, the old covenant, that came to an end in AD 70. Do you remember the teaching about I did some teaching about the rapture, the end time rapture. Yeah. And I did some teaching about uh, the cross as well. And AD 70 is a significant date. It is a significant date. So 
There is there, between AD 30 and AD 70, and you don't have to be a mathematical genius to work this out, there's a 40-year time period, starting with the death and resurrection of Jesus, when both the Old and the New Covenant were still active. Right? And believers were walking out within that period, what does it mean to be in the New Covenant? And that is the setting, that is the context there that Scripture, New Testament Scripture is written in. New Testament scriptures written within that time period and some of the things that we read in scripture reveals some of the argy-bargy that the church had trying to work out and walk out new, new covenant life in an old covenant setting. And they were still arguing over things. And they were still saying, we can't do it that way. We need to do it this way. And don't go back to the old ways. We have now got the new way that Jesus has brought. Hebrews... The book of Hebrews was written, sorry about that, about there, AD 65, a few years before the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which was the end of the old covenant. That's the time when the old covenant ceased. Now we don't know who the author of, of Hebrews is. Some people have guessed certain names that we don't really know. But the focus is on three main themes. We'll quickly look at them. <coughs> the first theme is that the Old Covenant was about to pass away. The second theme was the Atonement was Christ the Victor. Now if you remember when we looked at, uh, when we looked at the cross, I showed how for the first 1100 years of the church, the church only knew this view of the Atonement, Christ the Victor where Jesus went and, got, went and got back the keys and got back the authority that man had given away to the devil and he got it back and he brought it back, okay? They'd never even heard of penal substitution. They didn't even know what it was. That didn't start until around 1500 when John Calvin and his lads started developing some legal and legalistic framework to try and fit atonement into so they believed in Christ the victor. So there was no such thing as the wrath of God being poured out on the sun. That, didn't, that, that, that was a million miles away from their thinking. They never even thought about that because it was never introduced until much later. And the third theme is that Jesus and the new covenant is better than the old covenant. There are 13 chapters to Hebrews. Chapters 1 to 7 say Jesus is better, that he is greater than angels, greater than Moses, better than Aaron, better than Melchizedek. Chapters 8 to 10 where the new, the new covenant is better, better promises, better sanctuary, better sacrifice, better results. And then chapters 11 to 13 where it is faith is our response. Now this is the first time that we've tackled the book of Hebrews as a church. We've never ever tackled it before, partly because it's not easy to do, so we've always kept on the easy stuff. You see? We're not daft. That's why we've kept off Revelation as well, you see. Who knows, that might, that might stick its head up soon. But Hebrews, this is the first time we've tackled it, and we're going to take a whole chapter each time, which is a lot. So if you want to get something from this, it would pay you to read the chapter in the week before the weekend when we're going to tackle it. So like next weekend when Richard hits chapter 1, it would help if you've read chapter 1 before then. 
In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 it says this, and I'm going to finish with this. God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And I hope and pray that over the next few weeks, we will begin to understand and appreciate what that means. Okay? Amen.